Uh, it's good to be with you again. I'm excited to kind of follow up from what we talked about last week. Um, but before that, uh, continuing to talk about uh, things that happened at our General Assembly just briefly. Uh, we put this in the newsletter. Um, we passed several potential amendments to our Book of Church Order regarding the qualifications of officers. Um, just by way of reminder, when we pass amendments like this, you vote on them at the assembly, then they have to be ratified by two-thirds of the presbyteries, uh, and then we have to vote on them again at a subsequent assembly. And so there were a number of these that were debated, um, a few of them that were passed, uh, but, but many of them were passed by really narrow margins. And so we don't generally expect that they'll pass through the presbyteries, the two-thirds presbyteries uh, that are required. So the one that I think that will pass is what I put in the letter. I won't read it here, but it just regards um, officers' requirements in terms of viewing and making progress in personal holiness, right? That as a minister, you are to walk, or whether you're a deacon or an elder, you are to walk with exemplary holiness before your congregation, and that's kind of what that is targeted at. So I'll let you read that. If you have any questions about those, of course, um, ask me about them, um, and I'm happy to, to give you any clarification about that. As we go to the, the Lord's word, though, let's pray. Father, would you uh, be pleased to uh, quiet our hearts, focus our thoughts. We come in here this morning with so many different things on our minds. Would you be pleased to take um, these next few minutes to speak to our hearts? Spirit, would you take from the wisdom and the goodness and the truth and the love and the holiness and the peace and the purity that is yours, and would you impart it to us by your power? Spirit, by your power, would we receive those words with humility because they are able to save our souls? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I mentioned last week that... <clears throat> I found myself as a young man often not listening to the sermon, but reading my Bible. So I dug my Bible out. This is one of the few relics that survived my childhood. Um, says Danny Barber. It's, a, uh, it's an NIV. Um, apparently I was really into blue at that point um, and the phrase God rules, which I inscribed many times. Blue as a highlighter, it turns out, is not great. Uh, because now there are whole pages I can't read <laughs> here because the blue is so dark. Um, but I never shared why I was so drawn to Revelation. And for a long, a long time, I didn't really even understand it myself. But it's a big part of my story. Um, and uh, it involves my sister, um, Many of you probably didn't know that I had a sister. I didn't know that I had a sister for a long time. Um, and uh, that's because she died when I was uh, just over four years old. And so she only lived for a few days. Um, that's kind of, this is part of my remembrance of her. And I just always felt like there was something missing. And so when I began to kind of explore that, I found myself drawn to thinking about things like the book of Revelation, like questions about life after death, and 
What was she doing? What was she experiencing? Um, questions like the Thessalonians were probably asking, right? Um, remember the situation. They are being persecuted. Uh, some of them we know were dying because of what happened. Paul only had a few months with them, didn't get to teach them other, everything that he wanted. And so when Timothy comes back and makes his report to Paul in chapter 3, um, he brings with him questions, right? And we don't exactly know what the question is. I'll have, I have some thoughts I'll share as we go through the passage. Um, but we don't exactly know what the question is. But I imagine they're the same kinds of questions that I'm asking, right? About what is going on, what is happening to people after they die, etc. And um, underneath all of those questions are a lot of deeper questions uh, that we can talk about. Things like, what is our comfort? What is our comfort when those we care about die and leave this world? Maybe even a, a more related question, um, which I think becomes more difficult the longer we go in this life, how do we go on living. How do we properly mourn them? How do we properly grieve them? But how do we gain hope for them? So not just are they being comforted, but how are we comforted, right? And Paul's going to talk about the answer to those questions in our passage today. Um, it's a really straightforward um, paragraph. If you think back to your um, you know, high school English, right? You know, they'd say, put your, you know, kind of your propositional statement, what the paragraph's about in the first sentence, write up a nice conclusion to it, and you got your meat in the middle. That's the way this paragraph's arranged. So that's how we're going to talk about it. So Paul's going to tell us kind of the what. What does he want the Thessalonians to know in verses 14 to 17? Um, what is it he wants? He didn't get to tell them about the resurrection. And then he's going to say, why is that important to us? In other words, what effect does that knowledge now have on how we grieve and how we live our lives uh, in verses 13 and 18? So that's what we're going to walk through. Uh, we'll start by talking about what Paul uh, wanted to tell them. And we'll just go verse by verse through 14, 15, 16, and 17 and walk through it together. So he starts off in verse 14 saying, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul starts off the whole thing, uh, the whole, everything of what he wants to say, linking to the resurrection. The resurrection is everything for the Christian, right? He'll say in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is everything to the Christian. Jesus is the first resurrected person. In fact, it's, it's really interesting here, and um, it's something I, I didn't even pick up on myself, but one of the commentators I read pointed it out, because we read the word Jesus so often. But when Paul writes, he almost always writes Jesus something else. Maybe it's Christ Jesus. Maybe it's Jesus Christ. Maybe it's Jesus our Lord. Maybe it's Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet here, 
as well as maybe a couple other places in the New Testament, he only refers to him as Jesus. And when he does that, I think what he's trying to do is to highlight the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, the human person, died and rose again. And if you are united to him by faith, you must necessarily also be resurrected because you are united to him by faith. That's part of the promise. That's what we believe in. So Paul starts off the whole thing by saying, in union with Christ, you partake of this promise and you already have the evidence that because it's already happened to Jesus, right? That's the first place to start. And then he says that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Um, he uses here sleep as a metaphor, though people haven't always uh, talked about it that way. So uh, some in the church over the years, it's kind of the first reference I was able to find to it. It's like in the fourth century. Um, some people have talked about the concept of soul sleep. Maybe it's like uh, the best thing that I could think about the way people uh, tried to think about this was like in a sci-fi movie where, you know, you make a trip from like Earth to, you know, Jupiter or, or some other place, right? And they put you in like a cryo tube. I watch a lot of sci-fi. I like sci-fi. So maybe you don't, maybe this doesn't resonate with you, right? But you go in some kind of like stasis, right? Like you just stop. Your body stops. Maybe your mind stops, but you're just like, okay, I'm done. I'm resting. I'm, you know, that concept of soul sleep is not really supported by scripture. If this is the only passage that talked about um, what happens when we die, right? You could maybe make that argument because he uses the word sleep, but it doesn't jive with a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Like verses we talked about last week, 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 1, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord, right? Um, both Jesus and Stephen, Jesus in Luke 23 and Stephen in Acts 7, both, and when they are about today to die, say to God the Father, receive my spirit. Does that sound like something that's unconscious or you're not awake, right? The Bible in various places like Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, Revelation 7, picture the souls of those saints who have died, who have now been made perfect, who are experiencing the joy and the presence of the Lord Jesus, right? So there are a lot of places where we understand that that's what's true. So what does Paul mean then when he says we are asleep? Well, he's using sleep as a metaphor because the idea is when you go to sleep, you're going to wake up, right? The point is death is not the final word, right? We're asleep because we're going to wake up because there is going to be a resurrection, because we will be raised. And so death doesn't have the final answer. That's why he talks about it like this. And it's, a, again, a metaphor not just Paul uses, other people use. Um, Jesus said it of Lazarus in John 11, right? He's just asleep. And the disciples actually misunderstood that, thinking that he actually meant they were asleep. And no, he's like, no, he's died, but it's not going to end in death, right? Paul's doing the same thing here. So God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul tells them that there are, the, there are two groups of Christians in view here. There are the Christians who die before Jesus returns, and then there's the rest, the rest who are left alive at Jesus' return. And I think this might be uh, where their question was, um, will Christians who die before Jesus returns miss out on something on the experience of his return? Because the experience of his return, if you are in Christ, is a joyous event like we talked about last week, right? It's what you're waiting for, what you're hoping for, what you're longing for. The restoration of all things, right? The resurrection of your own body. You want that. And are they somehow going to miss out on that because they've died before he returned? And Paul's answer is no. You shall not be resurrected until Jesus comes back and brings with him all those who have fallen asleep in him. Right? So everyone, regardless of whether you are asleep or awake at the time of his coming, is going to experience the coming of Jesus. Right? Consistent even with verses like, every eye will see him. Right? Not just every eye living, every eye who has ever lived will see him. So we who are alive and who are left at the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul's getting into kind of the meat of where he's been going with this. And this verse, we could spend like the whole time just on this verse because it's such a cool verse. But there's some really interesting background to what Paul's saying in verses 16 and 17. Um, if you have your Bibles... Uh, you can flip with me to Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read a little bit. Um, there are a lot of key passages in the Old Testament, right? Um, 2 Samuel 7, Daniel 7, which we'll talk about, Deuteronomy 6, Genesis 1. Uh, and one of those other ones, right, is Exodus 19 and 20. What do we have in Exodus 20? Commandments. Right? Ten Commandments. So, uh, Exodus 19 and 20, one of the passages you would have um, been so thoroughly familiar with, right? It, this is the point where Jesus, well, where God has brought um, Israel out of captivity, right? And they're about to meet him really for the first time. And so they come up, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai. And as I read through this, this is Exodus 19, I'll start in verse 16. Listen for the words that you hear that are also going to be repeated in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Right? Can you get a picture of that? The magnificence, the grandeur of his presence coming down on the mountain. Moses gathering God's people up from their homes to come out to meet him because God had descended to the mountain, right? And then this dialogue as he speaks and God's voice sounds like the thunder. Just a a tremendous scene. And now look at what Paul says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, just like the cloud did on Sinai, with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Um, He's clearly kind of drawing on what happened at Sinai to kind of help explain how this is going to go. There's a couple of things that are happening here as well. So um, this cry of command, right? Uh, It's the only time this word's ever used. Um, It's a military... It's not a military word. It's used in the military, but it's more used for those in authority. It's like a summons. Um, The places where this is recorded in other Greek literature, right? It's, I ordered him to go do this, and he went and did that. It's the picture of someone in authority issuing a command that will thus be obeyed, right? And this is God on the last day saying, it is time for all things to be made right. And he gives two signs of that time, the voice of the archangel and the voice of the trumpet. It says sound of the trumpet, but the way it's written is voice in the trumpet. That's kind of how it's described in the language. These two voices, the angel and the trumpet, right? Declaring this is time, this is what's going to happen. And then we see what happens. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then verse 17, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And there's that word again, right? Just the same way that Israel came out of their houses to meet God, we will go and meet the Lord Jesus in the air. Now, what's up with that? Like, why why are we doing that? It's a good question. A lot of people have had a lot of different things. Um, I've mentioned this guy before. His name is John Chrysostom. He's from the fourth century, one of the early church fathers. Um, and in his, one of his sermons on this passage, he writes this. He says, If Jesus is about to descend, on what account should we be caught up to go meet him? For the sake of honor. For when a king drives into a city, those who are in honor go out to meet him, but the condemned await the judge within. Upon the coming of an affectionate father, his children indeed, and those who are worthy to be his children, are taken out in a chariot that they may go see and kiss him. But the others who have offended him remain within. We are carried out upon the chariot of our God and Father, he's speaking metaphorically, to be caught up. We are caught up to meet our God and Father, for he received Jesus up in the clouds. Do you see how great is the honor? 
Think about the triumphal entry. When Jesus came in on the donkey, what did people do? They came out of their homes and they got palm branches, right? And they laid them down and they worshiped him on the road. This is the same thing happening, but on a grander scale where all people across the face of the earth, all Christians who have ever lived can go out in honor and meet the one they've been waiting for and greet him and kiss him, the one whom they love. That's the point of going out to meet him. To give him worship and to receive honor and glory from him as well. Paul's not super concerned with um, where we go from there, though I will say that we do know that Jesus is continuing his descent to the new heavens and new earth. That's a topic for another day. Paul's not as concerned about that, but I did want to mention it. So that's what Paul says. How then do we take that? Why is that important? What's the big deal for us? He says in verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed about this, brothers, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then he says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. What is Paul trying to say there? Is he saying we shouldn't be sad? Is he saying, um, you know, that Christians should just kind of respond like, oh, you know, well, he's going to be resurrected. It's not a big deal. I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, there's another uh, church father, a guy named Gregory of Nanzanius. There's a lot of Gregories in the, in the old times. Um, he was a contemporary of Chrysostom. Gregory was one of two brothers. And um, Gregory's brother was a prominent man, very gifted um, politically. He was a physician by training, uh, ministered to the Emperor Julian in his court. Um, both of them and their whole family were believers. Um, and Gregory's brother, um, having survived a really big uh, local event, the earthquake of Nicaea, um, suddenly died getting, uh, you know, in a plague right after that. And so Gregory had to do his funeral. Um, and the funeral, um, the homily he gives at the funeral is really powerful. Um, he, after he does his, his bio of him, uh, he goes through and he uh, gets to the question of what are we, what are we talking about? What, what's the point of all of this stuff? And he starts talking about the fact that he knows, I know what Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Like, I know that. I know that when you die, you are at peace. But that's what everybody else says. Everybody says when you die, you're at peace. Is that enough? Is that, is that all there is to the Christian hope? That death is a release? That death is just kind of a stopping of things? Is that all there is? Is that all we have to look forward to? Where is our comfort? And he says this in his sermon. He says, Is the knowledge that the soul is happy on death because it's with God, is that inadequate for our consolation? 
I will add a more potent remedy. St. Paul speaks of the earthly tabernacle and the house not made with hands, the one to be dissolved, the other laid up in heaven, saying absence from the body to be presence with the Lord and bewailing this life in the body as an exile and therefore longing and hastening to his release. Why am I faint-hearted in my hopes? Why behave like a mere creature of this day? I await the voice of the archangel, the last trumpet, the transformation of the heavens, the transfiguration of the earth, the liberation of the elements, the renovation of the universe. Then I shall see Caesarius, that's his brother, then I shall see Caesarius himself, no longer in exile, no longer laid upon a funeral bier, which is like what you transport bodies on, no longer the object of mourning and pity, but brilliant, glorious, heavenly, such as in my dreams I have often beheld thee, dearest and most loving of brothers, pictured by my desire and by the very truth. Just like he wants to comfort his mom and his dad at his brother's death, Paul wants to comfort his friends with what is most comforting. And remember who Paul is, right? Paul is the one who on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 saw the heavens opened up and Jesus spoke to him directly. He spent three years learning from Jesus in the wilderness in Galatians 1, right? Paul would write about his experience later on in 2 Corinthians 12 and he would say, such a man, and he's talking about himself, was caught up into heaven and it was so real, I don't even know if it was in the body or not. That's how real it felt. And I saw things that were inexpressible. I saw the glory of Jesus and I can't even tell you about it, how glorious it is. And do you think if he wanted to comfort people by saying, your brothers and sisters are happy now, that that's what he would have said of course it is, but it's not what he says. What he says is something better. Death is not the end. What awaits them is resurrection. It's a better awakening. It's a better body. A body that was once died in weakness is now raised in power. It's incorruptible and it can't change. So we will always be with the Lord in the resurrection you and I will be more alive than we ever have been because we're freed from sin and freed from weakness and freed from corruption in the presence of evil. And he says, that is where your hope is. That is what tempers sorrow because in that moment, you realize that this is not the end. It's not the final answer. Death itself will be done away with. That is a hope that transcends what everybody else outside of the Christian faith believes. And it's something that brings us comfort because we say one day, not only will that be true of us, but you and I and everyone else in Christian history, including my sister, and all of those that we care about, we will be with them, like Paul says in, in uh, 2.19 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Who is our hope and our joy 
and our crown of exaltation at his coming, is it not you? That not only do we get those benefits and those blessings and so being with the Lord, but we are with each other. So Paul says, take comfort. You will not be separated from each other because we are united to Christ. And because we are all united to Christ, we are united to each other for eternity. And that is what gives us a comfort beyond what the world gives. As we've been walking through the New City Catechism, there are a number of different Reformed catechisms. Um, one of those that's kind of written the way the New City Catechism is, is the Heidelberg. It's 52 weeks. Um, it was written in 1563. And, um, you know, our first question in the Westminster Confession says, um, what is the chief end of man? And, and the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Heidelberg starts a little bit differently, and I, I really love the way it does this. Um, and I'm, I'm only going to read part of the answer, but the question is, what is our only comfort in life and in death? What a great way to start um, a catechism on the Christian faith. What is our only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the resurrection is everything for us. And the promise of resurrection that's demonstrated by the raising of Jesus, who is the first to be resurrected among us, gives us the comfort that we need to sorrow appropriately. Right? Don't hear me saying that we should not mourn or be sad. We talked about that before when Jesus wept at his friend Lazarus, knowing that he was going to raise him in mere minutes after that. But we don't sorrow as if our hope is lost. Our hope is as sure as the foundation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That one day we will not only see him, and be seen by him, but that we will see each other. That is our comfort in death. That is our encouragement, strong encouragement for life. I pray that we would encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, would you minister that comfort to us? We have had... Um, a couple of months now of loss, experiencing loss and dealing with um, the changes. And as we go, we will experience more loss until you come again. Father, I pray that these words would be that anchor of the soul that holds us fast, that we would look to and long for the hope of your coming, the hope that everything will be made right again that you will restore all things that are broken and dead. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen.